Nearly a decade ago, I found myself filling the hours by listening to podcasts while my husband, Brooks, was training with the U.S. Army. Walking the streets of our Army post, I dreamt of creating something for women that bridged that gap between sermon audio and small talk. It was on the floor of my tiny closet on post that that very dream, the Dream for the Journey Women podcast, came to fruition in June of 2017. And today, by God's grace, Journey Women is now a not-for-profit ministry with the aim of moving women to know and love God more. Our monthly and one-time givers help make our mission possible. If you'd like to support the work that we do, you can make a tax-deductible donation by visiting journeywomen.org forward slash give. Thank you for investing in the work of Journey Women. Welcome to the Journey Women Podcast. I'm your host, Hunter Belis. Life's a journey we were never meant to walk alone. We all need friends along the way. On the Journey Women Podcast, we'll chat with mentors about gracefully navigating the seasons and challenges we face on our journeys to glorify God. On today's episode of the Journey Women Podcast, I'm chatting with Mary Wilson about women's roles in the church. When Mary and I started talking, I may have admitted to my armpits sweating a little bit while I'm sitting here recording in the closet, as this can be a little bit of a sensitive topic. But as the conversation progressed, it was clear that Mary's somebody who you can talk to that just oozes grace. I hope you'll listen like you're sitting across the table from us as we discuss everything from where we see women exercising their spiritual gifts in the scriptures to the biblical instruction for women's roles in the church. We are praying that this conversation will serve as a catalyst to dig into the Word and to pursue further dialogue with women in your own local churches. Ultimately, our hope is that you'll walk away encouraged to joyfully celebrate the importance that God has placed on women's roles in the body. So you'll know her a little better. Mary Wilson serves at Second Presbyterian of Memphis, Tennessee as the Director of Women in Ministry. Along with being trained in the local church context, she received formal theological training at Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary and at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School. Mary enjoys teaching and training others to teach the scriptures, especially in the local church context. Now, on to my conversation with Mary Wilson on women's roles in the church. Mary, welcome to the Journey Women podcast. I got the privilege of sitting under your teaching last year at TGCW 18, um, and I can't believe I'm getting to sit in the closet and talk to you, quite frankly. Oh, well, listen, Hunter, it's a joy to join with you, and I'm so glad to learn from you as well and interact on this topic together. So last year, you planned the whole Gospel Coalition conference, right? Uh, well, that's not the right way to put it. <laughs> I, I was uh, one of a team who uh, helped pull it off, and um, all of those members on my team would laugh at the way that you <laughs> phrased that question because I leaned on them so much. So it's not even funny. Uh, but but yeah, it was it was a joy. I wish I could have met you while we were there. I, I know, missed out, I man. Know. I was I was a back row fangirl while you were teaching Deuteronomy, which you have your doctorate in Deuteronomy. Am I correct in that? Uh, well, I, I studied Deuteronomy. Yeah, I have a doctorate in theological studies with a focus on Old Testament, and my okay. project was in Deuteronomy. I, I would have been happy, Hunter, to get a doctorate focusing on any book of the Bible whatsoever. Yeah. Uh, but it was a real joy to be in Deuteronomy. Okay, so how do you exercise your gifts and like your theological training and all of that in the context of the local church that you serve in today? Because you're serving at um, Second Pres in Memphis, correct? Yes, I've uh, just moved back to Memphis about eight months ago. It's been such a joy to be back here with my brothers and sisters in this local church. And my role here on the 
local church staff team is just to help equip the female saints for the work of ministry. The main thing that I do has to do with the ministry of the Word. So that is, you know, teaching the Bible, training others to study and teach the Bible, counseling women, discipling women, all rooted in the Scripture, so on and so forth. So that's the really the cutting edge of what I do is the ministry of the Word. But I also come alongside my um, brother elders and help them as they shepherd the women in the congregation mm-hmm. and whatever it is that they need help in and helping the female saints here look more and more like Christ. So it's very day to day, but it's a, it's a real joy. Man, I love that so much. And that's exactly why I wanted to have you on the show today to talk about women's roles in ministry, because this is coming in the context of a whole series on the church, Mary. So we're talking about everything. We're hitting church history. We're hitting the local church. We've hit spiritual gifts at this point. That's so violent, Hunter. You're hitting so many things. It's really, really been fun. And I've been excited to see how the listeners have just been really getting excited about conversations about the church. And so, of course, as women, I mean, it's the Journey Women podcast. (laughs) We would love to hear from you just about what it looks like for us in our design as females, as, as women of God, to serve in the context of the local church. So where do we see women in scripture exercising their God-given gifts? All over the place, (laughs) from beginning to end. Yes. We see women all throughout the Bible exercising a wide array of gifts and a wide array of contexts. And it's actually really beautiful. I think that it's so important before we start getting into the nitty gritty of how women you know, work out their roles in church life, I think we've got to climb up to the mountaintop and take a take a view at, uh, at the panorama and just be astounded by the ways in Scripture that women are exercising their gifts. So the natural woman with whom to begin is Eve. Mm-hmm. Uh, we don't often think of her along these lines, but let's get back to the basics. Genesis 1 tells us that God created both Adam and Eve in the image of God. He blesses both of them. He gives both Adam and Eve dominion over his creation. And those are enormous gifts of grace that God is bestowing on both Adam and Eve. So God bestows on Eve the gift of being created in his image. And that entails, of course, a special status and a special vocation. And then he gives her the gift of receiving his blessing and of being called for a particular mission, you know, to fill and subdue the earth alongside her husband. So these are enormous gifts right out of the gate that we see God giving his male and female image bearers. And God gives them everything they need to fulfill their mission. And one of the things that God gives them, one of the gifts that God gives Adam and Eve to fulfill their mission is that he creates them as sexually differentiated persons. Mm -hmm. We don't actually think about this along the lines of gift, but that's a gift that enables them to complete the mission. They're interdependent and also complementary. That's actually how they're able to partner together to fulfill the very mission God gives them. I've like I've never thought about it like that because so often I think, yeah, culturally it's just something that we come at from a whole different angle. And when you talk about it that way, it makes me want to cry. <laughs> Don't cry, Hunter. Uh, but but I am postpartum. Lo- yeah, right. Listen, I've never been postpartum, but I can imagine that I would be a hot mess. <laughs> But you're acknowledging that that is really beautiful. I'm in total mm-hmm. agreement with you. Even, you know, the, the fact that God creates Eve as Adam's helper, that's also a gift. Now, often we think about the term helper as a derogatory term, but right. that's actually a noble designation. It's the role of strength and privilege. You know, elsewhere in the Old Testament, 
God calls himself Israel's helper. (laughs) And then, of course, God's spirit is the ultimate helper par excellence. So that's another of Eve's gifts that God gives her to exercise in fulfillment of the mission. So right at the start, the Bible sets before us the beauty of male-female partnership with each image bearer relying on God's gift to fulfill the mission. And then, of course, we, we need to say, along with that, with each image bearer being equal in their status mm-hmm. and in their vocation. So those, those are crucial things. So Eve is, of course, the first woman. You, know, you asked about where we see women in Scripture exercising their God-given gifts. She's the first. But she's the first in a, in, of many. <laughs> but Hunter, something you and I have chatted about already earlier is that, you know, when we talk about the scripture's vision for women exercising gifts, we, we want to do so soberly, acknowledging that Eve's exercising of her gifts in Genesis 1 and 2 becomes much more difficult come Genesis 3. <laughs> And every other woman in the scripture and your experience, Hunter, and my experience, every other, everyone else's experience of exercising the gifts that God gives us after the events of Genesis 3, it's complicated and it yeah. involves struggle and um, hardship to exercise gifts east of Eden. So, you know, and just by way of reminder in Genesis 3, Adam and Eve rebelled against God and they ushered into God's good creation, his perfect creation. They ushered in sin and distortion and death. And so, and including hostility between man and woman. So for image bearers east of Eden, exercising our God-given gifts can be really painful. I suspect that a lot of you listeners have experienced a great deal of pain and brokenness. You laid it out and it was like, it happened so long ago, but it perfectly describes, I think, the struggle and the tension that we see in the church today. It's hard to talk about this topic because sometimes I think we can tend to be, to pretend as if Genesis 3 never happened and that exercising uh, one's gifts in the church is not East of Eden, but in reality, we are East of Eden. We're in a broken and sinful world. And you know, men and women, again, some of the very people listening in on our conversation, including you and me, we have a great deal of painful memories or we've been disrespected by the opposite gender. Some of, some of us have been abused by the opposite gender or some of us may be wrestling with gender dysphoria or we know someone and love someone who's wrestling with issues relating to our gender, our sexuality, our identity. It's just... We've got to be sober-minded when we talk about this topic. But I, I think the fact that we're east of Eden does expose, you know, why this conversation is so hard, but it also underscores why it's so important. I mean, what are your thoughts on that, Hunter? Have you experienced that this is a difficult conversation to have? Oh, yeah. I mean, my pits are sweating in the closet right now even talking about it. <laughs> you know, it's something that's that's hard to approach, like you said, because of the fall. And then I think just people's interpretation of like the biblical instruction. And so uh, I'd love to move into that if, if that's good for you. The interpretations of those texts can be so varying. Yes, absolutely. And I, I'm so glad to, to be talking about this. And I, and I do want to get to those particular texts that really show us some specific instructions about how men and women differently live out the call in the context of the church. But 
I guess I, I first want to acknowledge that throughout Scripture, we really do see such a wide array of what it looks like for women to exercise their gifts. I mean, we've got lots of different examples. We've got Deborah, you know, who's a prophetess. She was a judge over the people of Israel, which means that she heard people's disputes and she relied on God's law and determined what was just according to God's law. And then and then she called for justice to be implemented in each case. She's like the the original boss babe. Yeah, well, I don't know what <laughs> boss babe is because I'm culturally irrelevant, but I'll take your word for it. So anyway, we've got all these women in the Old Testament. And then one of the best places to go in the New Testament is Romans 16. It's not very common to look at, but I just think it, it's so helpful. You know, in New Testament epistles, oftentimes the greetings, the longer greetings, rather, they come at the end of the letters. That was the custom of the day. And in Romans 16, Paul is, and get, you know, from, from verses 1 to 16, I guess he's He's greeting lots of men and women in the church. And, and so in this greeting, we actually get a pretty clear window into the life of the church. And one thing that we see about this church is it's marked by unity in the midst of diversity. And that's various sorts of diversity. It's gender diversity, mm-hmm. socioeconomic status, profession, cultural background, even particular ministry roles. It's just all these glorious diversities coming together with these men and women united in Christ. And I think here, Paul graciously gives us um, a snapshot of different ways women exercise their gifts. So let me just mention a few of these. Look at verse one right there. I okay. commend to you our sister Phoebe. Okay, so Phoebe, a lot of people believe that Phoebe was, was actually the one who carried this letter from Paul to the Romans. Uh, she's, wow. She serves a particular local church near Corinth look at verse um, two, that she's been a patron of Paul's, uh, which probably means that Phoebe has been supporting Paul financially and then also probably through hospitality, opening her home to him. So here's a woman who is stewarding her financial resources for the advancement of the gospel. And then she's using the gifts of mercy and administration to serve the saints of her local church and then also the leaders of the whole church movement. Yeah, then look at the verse three, greet Prisca and Aquila. Prisca, also known as Priscilla. So Priscilla is married to Aquila. And then look at that. Paul refers to them as fellow workers or co-workers in Christ. Yeah. This married couple, they open their home to the local church there. That would have required using gifts of ongoing hospitality and administration. Risking their girl necks. Yes. Yes. They <laughs> risk their own necks. And then, of course, elsewhere, we learn that Priscilla and Aquila are out and about, and they hear the, the preaching of Apollos, and they, they see that he needs to, to be instructed in the, the full gospel message. So they take him in, and they, the two of them together, disciple Apollos, yeah. who becomes one of the most influential gospel preachers. So along with her husband, Priscilla is exercising the gifts of hospitality, administration, teaching. She helps plan a church. Look at these women. Look at verse 6, Mary, and then look at uh, verse 12, Tryphena, Tryphosa. I wish those were my names. Persis. <laughs> with, with all four of those women, Paul is saying that they work hard in the Lord. Mm-hmm. He's talking about how they're working hard in the Lord. So again, Paul's writing this letter to the context of a whole local church in Rome. So he's honoring these four women uh, he's commending them to the whole church as hard workers. 
and seeing their labor as valuable and significant. And, and I certainly think that Paul here sets an example for leaders of local churches that they would proactively and regularly commend and honor the women of their congregation. As you prepare for the summer, we want to share a unique way to introduce your non-believing friends to a local church, Skylark. If you're in the Dallas-Fort Worth Metroplex, you need to know about Skylark Summer Camp for your kids or as a means to supplement evangelism. Skylark partners with gospel-centric churches to provide summer camps as a means of childcare. By meeting parents' needs for summer childcare for kids having completed kindergarten through fifth grade, Skylark positions the local church to meet the spiritual needs of their community. They offer gospel-rich curriculum that is new each day of their summer camp. Kids can attend for one week, a few weeks, or all 11 weeks. Choose from one of their four locations offering a full summer program in Dallas, Plano, Allen, and Mansfield. The cost is $325 a week, but you can use the code JOURNEYWOMEN for 50% off every single week. What? Head on over to CampSkylark.com to learn more. That's C-A-M-P-S-K-Y-L-A-R-K dot com and use the code JOURNEYWOMEN for 50% off. I think so often as women, I don't know, at least my experience has been that I often will feel like because of because of being a woman, like I don't feel like I, you know, have a place to serve in the body mm-hmm. of Christ, you know? And mm-hmm. so it's just amazing to see these examples and just to see like so many women in that portion of scripture just commended by Paul is, that's amazing. Absolutely. No, it's beautiful. It bursts some of our categories and some of our traditional cultural assumptions of what men are supposed to do and what women are supposed to do. Um, I mean, for example, even Priscilla and Aquila both are opening their home. Um, The home is not merely the context for women to be advancing the gospel. It's one of the most critical contexts in which we see the gospel advance. And look, both men and women are involved. Yeah. So, okay, indulge me with just two more. And believe me, I'm I'm cutting some things out. So, Give me some credit. People are like, we need like a part two with Mary. Yeah, right. (laughs) Then they're going to be like, we needed a part zero. Okay. (laughs) Verse seven. Look, greet Adronicus and Junia. Um, But here, here's another, uh, probably a married couple. And uh, Paul is, you know, Junia is a Jewish woman. And she, along with her husband, was imprisoned with Paul. Now there's disagreement about this, about what Paul writes about Junia. but, But in my view, Paul is noting here that, that this couple, they're well-known among the apostles, and also they themselves are messengers of the gospel, perhaps even missionaries. And then, okay, lastly, look at what he says about Rufus's mother. Look at verse 13. Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord, also his mother, who has been a mother to me as well. I think that is so beautiful. Mm. Don't you love that? It's crazy to think about Paul. Like it just kind of brings some life to, I don't know, like him sitting in the house of Rufus, like with the mother, (laughs) the second mother making dinner for them or something and then chatting around the table. Exactly. And we're sort of speculating a bit about what it means, but just exactly the sort of line of thinking that you're going with, we can imagine that this woman, again, who Paul sees as a surrogate mother, probably exercise the gifts of nurture, wisdom, hospitality, Hospitality, maybe even other gifts. So 
all of that to say, Hunter, just in this little snapshot of this greeting at the end of the letter, we see that women are absolutely crucial to the life of the church. And Paul, the leader, is publicly commending them and honoring them. Yeah. I, I just think that's the bottom line. You know, women are not marginal and their gifts are not marginal. They're right at the heart of, yeah. of what God is aiming to accomplish through this them. This is also just kind of throwing down the gauntlet for Bible study because, you know, I really love Romans. And sometimes I'm just like so hung up in chapters like three through nine that 16 is just kind of like skim. And Mm -hmm. I'm so happy that you drew all of that out for us because I have missed that in the past. And I think that's why the whole word of God is like so important for us to look at. And so I do want to hear from you if if we're all done with the women in scripture. Yeah, (laughs) well, we're not all done with it, but but I'll I'll stop for now. Are you good with moving into like the biblical instruction for women's roles in the church because I see that. And then I have these cultural impositions on scripture and and I just am really wanting to establish like a biblical foundation, Mary, for what the instruction is biblically for women's roles in the church. Can we move there? Yeah, no, absolutely. And it's, and we've got to move there. I mean, it's, it's such an important topic and it's, it's actually a topic that often we're intimidated of, but the more we dig into it, I think the more we behold God's goodness and his wisdom. But Again, the first thing that we've got to say, you know, the way that you're phrasing the question is the biblical instruction for women's roles in the church. So the first thing we've got to say is that the Bible instructs women to put their faith in Jesus Christ and become part of the church by faith. You know, that's the main role of women in the church is belonging to Jesus and belonging to one another as family in the church. Yes. And so we gladly join with Uh, men and women, our brothers and sisters in worshiping our father. Again, at the start, we affirm that just as, you know, moments ago we were talking about at creation, God bestows on both Adam and Eve full equality in their status and vocation of being in his image. The, The same is true at redemption. God bestows on men and women, believers in Christ, full equality in our status and in our vocation of being co-heirs with Christ and partners in the ministry. So there's full equality. And then at the same time, the Bible also instructs us about certain distinctions between men and women. So we mentioned that God ordained distinctions between men and women at creation, and those distinctions ought to come to expression in marriage and in the church. I know we're talking about the church and I'm a single woman, but still, let me, let me make a comment about Paul's instruction for marriage because I think it's, it's fundamental to the discussion about the church. Perhaps the, the most common place to go is Ephesians chapter five, because it's there that Paul shows us that the way God has designed husbands and wives to relate, to be united as two different but complementary persons becoming one flesh, God has designed it that way in reference to Christ and the church. In other words, the mystery of union in marriage between a man and a woman, it points to and displays the relationship of Christ and the church. Mm-hmm. We're not talking about some humdrum realities here. We're actually talking about something glorious, something that's designed to teach us about the person and work of Christ and His love for His people. So anytime we're dealing with biblical instructions for marriage or biblical instructions about differences between men and women, we want to remember that it's built into this whole framework of God's 
ultimate purposes in Christ, which is just marvelous. You know, even as we want to be sober-minded about the challenges we faced east, east of Eden, we also want to be sober-minded about the privileges of it all. Yes. So listen, here we go, Hunter. I'm going to finally get to what you asked me, which is how these God-ordained distinctions between men and women, how they come to expression in the church, the household of faith. Turn with me to, to 1 Timothy 2. Lots of passages to go, and it honestly is sad to me that we that we can't go to all of them. Maybe not sad to you. This is like an honor and a privilege <laughs> to get to be t- flipping my Bible under the tutelage of Mary Wilson. Yeah, so. yeah, yeah. <laughs> so 1 Timothy 2, I'm going to be looking at verses 8 through 15. This is probably the most controversial passage. And so I guess, you know, I tend to say, hey, go bigger, go home. Let's just, <laughs> let's just get right to the jugular. But let me give you the, the bottom line interpretation that I take, and then I'll press into some of the details. The bottom line is that I see this passage and others as limiting the office of a local church elder or overseer, or you know, different churches call it, as limiting that office to qualified men. Mm-hmm. That's the office in the local church that holds the authority of governing and disciplining the church, you know, and that includes overseeing the church's corporate worship and the teaching and preaching of the scriptures in the context of corporate worship. So the bottom line is that that is what I think this passage teaches. So are you happy, Hunter, for me to read it and then mention a couple things about it? Yeah, that'd be great. Okay. First Timothy 2, verses 8 through 15. I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Likewise, also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. You know, I'm thinking amen right now to the save through childbearing because I'm feeling real desperate for Jesus. You're getting it done (laughs) and I am not. Uh, So No, you're you're bearing children right here in the closet. You're making a disciple right now. (laughs) I tell you what. Well, okay. So so let me, before we press into the details, let me chat a bit about the context. Look, Hunter, look right at the beginning of chapter two. You see verse one, first all, then I, I um, urge supplications mm-hmm. and prayers and intercession. Paul here is dealing with corporate prayer in the context of the gathered assembly to worship. So the church gathered corporately to worship. And then right. look at the beginning of chapter three, which is immediately following what we just read. Paul begins, the saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to be the off- to the office of overseer, et cetera, et cetera. So he's dealing there with the office of elder. Okay, that's what I was wondering. Overseers, elder. Yes. Okay. Yes. So, okay, that's important to establish. So, in this context, Paul is dealing with instructions for the gathered church for corporate worship, the gathered assembly. And Paul is dealing here, he starts with a few things that women should do. They should be mm-hmm. full and active participants in the worshiping assembly. Look, they're good works, they're noted as important and as vibrant. And then Look at verse 11, let a woman learn. 
So they should learn along with the men. And yet, in verses 11 and 12, Paul is forbidding something of women. And then in verses 13 through 15, he's rooting what he forbids in the drama of creation, fall, redemption. Mm. Okay? Wow. So we want to notice that. He's talking about what women should do. Then he does forbid something, and then he roots that instruction in the drama of creation, fall, redemption. Now, let me just say a couple things that Paul can't be meaning here in verses 11 and 12, based on instructions that he gives us elsewhere. Okay. For example, Paul can't mean that a woman isn't able to be a vocal participant in corporate worship. One reason I say this is in 1 Corinthians 11, another difficult passage, Paul is giving instructions about how women properly pray and prophesy in the context of corporate worship. So when he says, let a woman learn quietly, he isn't saying a woman cannot speak in corporate worship. I mean, let's talk about another thing. Nor can Paul mean, you know, when, when he says, I do not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man. He can't mean that a woman isn't able to exercise any sort of authority or leadership over men in any context. I mean, I've already mentioned Priscilla and Aquila teaching and discipling Apollos. So Paul can't be forbidding all teaching or exercising authority in any context. Instead, that that helps us as we look at other passage, that helps us narrow in. This is to the overseer, right? Yeah. So Paul's forbidding a particular type of teaching and a particular type of authority in a Mm -hmm. specific context. That's helpful. Yes. And so you've already gone there. It seems to me that what Paul's forbidding here is forbidding women from exercising authoritative preaching of the word that happens in the context of public worship and from exercising authority in the particular office of local church elder. Mm -hmm. Uh, And of course, there's more to deal with in this passage, but it does show the importance of reading in context, not just the immediate literary context of chapter 2, 1 through through 7, and then what immediately follows it, but also the context of Paul's other instructions. Yeah, this is super helpful, Mary. And, you know, naturally I'm thinking, how do people argue against this? Like I've heard the cultural argument, like this isn't relevant anymore. Mm-hmm. What are some of the things that people would say who hold a different interpretation of this passage? Yeah, no, I'm, I'm really glad you're asking that, Hunter. And some of my closest friends disagree with me in this matter. And so it's a frequent source of conversation uh, among my, my friendship groups. But let me, yeah. so let me just give you a few different um, ways that people would take issue with my interpretation that I've just given. I mean, some, just like you said, I mean, they argue that Paul here, he's not aiming to give some sort of trans-temporal, trans-cultural instruction, but instead he's actually, he's giving this this instruction particularly to first century women in Ephesus. Sometimes the argument goes that the Ephesian women, um, they were particularly immature or there was a particular heresy in Ephesus at the time, or they were spiritually unhealthy in some manner. And so really we that's what Paul is after. He's, he's aiming to instruct Timothy to keep those women silent and in submission. Okay. The trouble is that elsewhere where Paul feels perfectly fine about calling out specific people or groups who are out of line without giving categorical prohibitions. And then also, Paul's logic here in verses 13 through 15 
it's not the logic of a time and culture bound sort of instruction. I mean, as we've already mentioned, he's grounding his restrictions in the realities of creation, fall, redemption. Right. So Paul seems to be forbidding here, you know, something for all times and in all churches. And so even, you know, a similar passage that, you know, I encourage you to look at is at the end of 1 Corinthians 14. It's a passage um, where Paul again calls women to keep silent in corporate worship. And in context, you have to look to get the context, but in context, he's talking about their remaining silent during the time when prophecies are judged. And who judges prophecies? Well, the elders, the ones who have the authority in the congregation. So again, I see it as related to the office of overseer. But my point is, when Paul is prohibiting that in 1 Corinthians 14, he says in verse 35, as the law also says. So once again, Paul is, yeah, he's rooting his instructions in something that is trans-temporal, trans-cultural. And we've got to reckon with that. Yes. I, I think another argument that I hear from some of my dear friends who hold different positions than I They say, well, okay, if you're going to say that Paul's instructions here, because he appeals to creation, fall, redemption, that they are transcultural instructions and that, you know, still women can't hold the office of overseer. What do you do about Paul's instructions in 1 Corinthians 11 about Uh head coverings? Because in in that passage, Paul appeals in part to creation. So, Wilson, you're being inconsistent. And again, I, I hesitate to bring it up, Hunter, because it, it merits a longer, more detailed discussion. But let me just say that in 1 Corinthians 11, Paul, uh, his main point is that both women and men are to be active participants, vocal, verbal participants in worship by praying and prophesying so long as the principle of male headship is properly expressed, God-ordained gender differences are maintained, and sexual purity and propriety is guarded. So that's his main point. And the way that he argues for that, he blends together both arguments that are culture-bound, including, you know, when he's talking about proper hair length and the head coverings. But then he also blends together arguments that are transcultural and transtemporal. That's when he's rooting it in creation. Now, push back on me if if I'm not being clear, but basically what I would say is, 1 Corinthians 11 does deal with a transcultural principle, and that is male headship Mm. and God-ordained authority structures. But the point of our objective is not to apply Paul's application of that principle, which was the head coverings, but we apply the principle. Now, we can learn how Paul applies the principle in his day and age. But we don't apply the, the application, which is head coverings. We apply the principle. Right. That makes sense. Yeah. So that's why I think First Timothy 2 and First Corinthians 11, they have some similarities, but it's not a one-to-one. And I would affirm that both give us timeless principles that we neglect to our peril and that we, we ought to embrace and see as God's good design for us.
Are there any other alternate interpretations of these texts that we should kind of familiarize ourselves with? Yeah, there's another one that I commonly encounter that some people call the trajectory argument or the redemptive movement argument. Okay. These folks agree with me that Paul issues transcultural instructions about overseers, but they say that when Paul does this, he's being chauvinistic in restricting the office to qualified men. They say that the church today needs to move beyond Paul's ethic to a better ethic. The the argument goes something like this. When we compare the Old Testament and the New Testament on the issue of gender and authority, we see a redemptive movement from the old to the new. That is, we see a progression toward a better ethic from the Old Testament to the New Testament, so that in the New Testament, we receive a more fully realized biblical ethic. Now, even though I want to articulate the matter differently than that, I do agree that there's redemptive movement from the old covenant to the new covenant on account of Christ's person and work. Okay. But here's where I take serious issue with some advocates of this trajectory argument. Some of them go on to say that just as the New Testament makes ethical progress beyond the Old Testament, so we in the church today are supposed to keep making ethical progress beyond the New Testament toward an ultimate ethic, an ultimate ethic that's more advanced than the ethics prescribed in the New Testament epistles. Now, applying this general logic to the specific issue at hand, they say that we're supposed to move beyond Paul's instructions on overseers to a superior ethic, namely an eradication of restrictions relating to gender for church governance. Now, it's common that uh, that they compare this issue uh, in church governance with that of slavery, and they say something like, Hey, just as we're supposed to move beyond what the New Testament says about slavery, so also we're supposed to move beyond what the New Testament says about the office of overseer being restricted to qualified men. Now, Hunter, the truth is that it is not possible for me to deal effectively with this topic in such a brief moment. But let me simply say that without a doubt, the New Testament guts the institution of slavery in the church. Yes. But it doesn't do that with gender distinctions in church governance. Okay, so so how do we see the New Testament gut slavery in the church? Well, in Paul's letter to Philemon, Paul appeals to Philemon to receive Onesimus, which we remember Onesimus is his runaway slave, to, to receive Onesimus as a beloved brother. So here, Paul is giving us underlying principles that eventually undermine the institution of slavery among family members in Christ. So the Bible itself gives us the foundation for that trajectory of eradicating slavery as an institution in the church. But this just simply isn't the case when it comes to gender distinctions in church governance. Paul nowhere gives us underlying principles that undermine the institution of marriage between a man and a woman or the the right ordering of the church. On the contrary, Paul specifically roots his instructions about overseers in the trans-temporal drama of creation, fall, and redemption. Now, many would object to me here and bring up Paul's comments in Galatians 3, 27 through 28. Just by way of reminder, in that passage, Paul writes, For as many of you as were baptized unto Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus." 
And, and here, the advocates of the trajectory ethics would say, see, uh, Paul's eradicating distinctions in the church. But I, I'd press back and I, I say in context, Paul's eradicating distinctions in terms of a person's status in Christ, mm. not in terms of how a person lives out that status in his or her various roles in the church. So in Galatians 3.28, Paul's saying that every person in Christ, regardless of cultural background, socioeconomic status, or gender, is a full legal co-heir of Christ with equal status as God's adopted child through faith. But Paul has no problem affirming men's and women's full equality in Christ while at the same time instructing them to live out that equal status differently in certain roles they assume in the church. So, Hunter, let me wrap up this woefully brief discussion of trajectory ethics by stressing one of its obvious dangers, and that is who determines this ultimate ethic? Mm. The, the people who I read um, that are advocating this particular, particular sort of trajectory argument, they're mostly 21st century Westerners. And so it's unsurprising to me that they end up advocating for an ultimate ethic that reflects 21st century Western egalitarian assumptions and conventions. For sure. I think that's really helpful. And I know that there are listeners who are going to hold a different view, you know, than mm-hmm. you and I. So how do we embrace one another, both our brothers and our sisters who maintain a different view? You've mentioned that you have friends who hold different positions. You guys are still friends. Um, yeah. How does that work itself out? Yeah. Well, they're really patient with me and gracious toward me. And that is the point, isn't it? They're, they, um, they're committed to, to loving me and I'm committed to loving them. And in that context of fellowship in Christ, we cultivate honest dialogue among one another. We are clear searching the scriptures with each other. So, I mean, if I think that a sister of mine is out of step with the Spirit, I will say so, and then she will do likewise. Uh, so we're, we're quick to forgive each other by God's grace, you know, always wanting to point each other toward the Lord and toward the scriptures. So, I so appreciate the friendships that I have with people who are candid with me. I think that um, they are out of line with the biblical vision that God gives us for men and women serving Christ in the church, and they think that I'm out of line as well. I mean, they would— some of my friends have pointed out to me Galatians 3.28, and they say, Mary, in talking so much about these distinctions, you're actually thwarting God's purposes by maintaining— old covenant distinctions. And I hear them out. And, I, you know, honestly, Hunter, I'm willing to, to re-examine and re-examine, always yes. being reformed by God's Word, always taking totally. into account what I see. But truly, the, the more I, I press into God's Word and the more I come to know Him, the more convinced I am of what I see as God's good design for the church and, and how we live that out. There are several dangers in talking about this topic, and one of them certainly is that we so foreground the restrictions for women in exercising their God-given gifts that we distort the whole picture, (laughs) Um, including the restrictions. Well, and then too, I think for me, you know, maybe it's that I wouldn't serve out of fear. Like I would Mm -hmm. think maybe I'm going to get this wrong and then I'm just going to not participate because I don't want to do the wrong thing, you know? 
Yeah. Can I share one thing? Uh, that's, I think that's a common feeling. Um, and let me share one thing that I so appreciate about my uh, brother elders here at Second Presbyterian. A number of years ago, this was before my time, since my time is eight months, but a number of years ago, they commissioned a group of men and women who held different views among themselves on this matter, and they commissioned them to study this issue biblically and then write a paper on it. And the group actually came out with a majority report and a minority report, and the elders uh, adopted the majority report and then added in some frequently asked questions and things like that. So the bottom line is the, the saints here at Second, we've got a position paper on it that our elders have overseen and then Mm -hmm. clarified. So women in our congregation and men in our congregation know what the majority of our elders Mm -hmm. think on this matter. They know um, how our elders long to see women fully deployed in the mission of Christ. There's clear statements about these texts, but then also how we at Second Presbyterian want to live them out. And I, I think, I haven't found this, but I think there was also a paper that the elders put together just listing the the wide array of ways that they want to see women partnering in the gospel and fully engaged in the mission. So I commend my brothers here for teaching so clearly on it. And it gives us a lot of freedom as women not to live in fear. We even the other the other week had a an event where I called together women to discuss this topic because I don't know about you, Hunter, but I find that a lot of people, we live off of secondhand convictions on this matter. We totally. haven't actually investigated it ourselves. It feels like it's hard to do the yes. book, like to do in a really sound biblical way. That's why I'm so thankful for your help in doing this because I, I like automatically want to go to someone else's interpretation of it. And I think that's why it's, I'm hoping that the listeners are even now like wanting to search the scriptures more for themselves yes. after having heard you present that. Yes. And, and I also think, so it's fear because we feel our own incompetence, but honestly, I think it's also fear because we know these issues are so personal and they've been so misused. And so we're afraid that talking about them provokes disunity. I'm scared of that right now. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And, and so honestly, yeah. So the, the other week we had um, a gathering of women where we read a book together and we opened the floor. Anyone could come, but only only the women who read the book were able to participate in discussion. I'm a drill sergeant. Um, <laughs> but I mean, I said from the outset, listen, if you disagree with anything, we're family. You feel free to voice that. You feel yeah. free to push back. You feel free to say if you think we're saying things glibly or in a in a manner that's not respectful or in a... And it was just really wonderful because so many of the women expressed... You know, we we are intimidated to take a look at this ourselves, and we're intimidated to talk about it, but we really want to understand it more. So we're hoping to do more of that here at Second, and yeah. our brother's clarity on the matter sets us free to do it. I love that you brought that out, because I know after listening to this, a lot of people are going to have a lot of questions, and I just want to encourage people, like, it's so important to take the questions that you have as you're listening to conversations like ours or other things that you come across on the internet and to take them into your local church body Mm -hmm. to discuss those with mentors. Why else do you think it's important, Mary, for us to seek to understand this topic in particular in the context of our local church body? Like you just described, you guys have done so beautifully at Second Prez. 
Well, and and I, of course, we at Second Presbyterian, we have we got our troubles. Uh, I'm not trying to say that that we're perfect, but I, I am just uh, I stand in a lot of admiration, my brothers and sisters here. I'd say that it's it's important first of all for the glory of God. He 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 calls us to work these matters out in the context of the local church. It's it's his ordained community uh, that's for our good, and then also just the nature of biblical wisdom is that God gives us, you know, the, the Bible is not some exhaustive manual for how to handle every situation. The, the Bible um, is God's personal speech to His people in which He gives us truth that, that we then, by the power of His Spirit, take and live out in our different callings and contexts. So we've got to work this out um, in our particular church, in our particular context. And I think you know, we, we've mentioned already a few dangers of this discussion, but I think one danger um, as we work these things out in our particular context is that sometimes we aren't clear with one another and maybe even in our own minds and hearts, the difference between what the scripture clearly teaches and what we're inferring with our own best judgment for sure. Everyone is extrapolating in some sense. We're, we're all making our best judgments in some sense about how to take what God says with clarity and how to, to apply that in our particular church structures and our particular cultural moment. And I think it's really important as we do this in the local church, always to bear in mind, okay, this is what God clearly teaches us in the scriptures. And this is what we are inferring based on that. It's our best judgment yeah. of how to live out what God says. Okay, so what would be an example of like an inference? And and you're saying that like an inference isn't necessarily a bad thing. It's like using, it's like wisdom applied. Is yes. that right? Yes, it, it's wisdom because that's what wisdom is, you know, applied yeah. truth. It's, it's um, the skill for living uh, well in God's world. So yeah, that inference, let me give you a personal example. Okay, great. I recognize that I I wish I could be sitting across the table from every listener here because I suspect this might land in a strange way, but let me just take first Corinthians 11. All right. So I'm someone who is theologically trained by God's grace and have, I've had the opportunity to, to help, um, assist in, um, the church's corporate worship in various ways. And at one point I, um, served in a local church whose elders, the majority of them held a different position on this matter than I. And they, um, asked me to assist in corporate worship. Now I see no reason, uh, and no clear teaching in the scripture that a woman ought not participate in any way in corporate worship. Instead, first Corinthians 11, I see that Paul is um, showing us how women may be vocal participants in corporate worship. So uh, having sought that issue, I see no reason why I shouldn't help assist in the corporate worship service. Mm -hmm. But I noticed from 1 Corinthians 11 that Paul is talking about expressing gender differences, even physically in the corporate worship service. And he's talking in particular about symbols of authority. Now, Honestly, I'm going to shoot you straight. I do not know what Paul means when he says in 1 Corinthians 11, verse 10, that is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. I don't know what that means, but, yeah. but what I know is, exactly, but what I know <laughs> is 
he sees physical symbols relating to authority as important. Okay, all of that said, here's what I did. And that the tradition in that church is that if you assist in the worship service in a particular service, you wear a robe. Now, here, Paul is talking about a symbol of authority on a woman's head that shows that she's under authority. So it's a little bit different. But in that particular context, I thought, you know what? A robe, a preacher's robe, originally didn't symbolize authority. I mean, originally, it just sort of blended out the preacher's ugly clothes. You know? <laughs> it was a teacher's garb. But in our current day and age, people associate that black robe yeah. with having authority. So, okay, I will assist in your worship service. You know, I won't preach, I won't, but I will assist in prayer and so on. But I will not wear a robe because people associate that with authority. I see what you mean about how it's just like, it's us flushing out the truth in practicals like that. Now, would I say, for example, a woman should never wear, wear a, robe. a robe? Yeah. No, no. <laughs> no. It's just in wisdom as I'm seeking yeah. to honor my creator key. Yes. It seems to me that it would be wise for me to express even by what I don't wear. Yeah, that's super helpful. And, you know, I know that came with lots of conversations with yes. the elders and teachers at that church. Who disagreed with me. <laughs> yes. So yeah, they were very gracious. What tips do you have for us who are, you know, seeking to cultivate effective partnership and ministry between both men and women within the context of our local churches? Yeah, no, it's, it's a critical, it's a critical question. And I, I think one of the starting points is that we pray for our local church leaders. Yes. Um, you know, it always starts there. And why do mm -hmm. we forget that? I, mm -hmm. At least I do. I think we forget it. And, and I do as well, Hunter. I think we forget it in part because we really don't think prayer is all that powerful. I've been so convicted of that. Yeah. I, I'm convicted of that often as well. But I think, I think that's the starting point, not simply because prayer is powerful in the sense that it's powerful for those for whom we pray. It's also powerful to change our hearts. Amen. And God, in His kindness, by the power of His Spirit, He works mightily in our hearts when we pray. So I think that praying for our brother elders, especially, and honestly, in part, praying that they would follow the Apostle Paul as he follows the Lord Jesus in honoring both men and women mm. and in viewing women as that. crucial to the mission of the church. So we pray for them in many senses, but we also pray that they would follow the example of Paul and the Lord Jesus. Uh -huh. um, mm. And then, you know, this is a bit of a nitty gritty practical thing, but for those of us who have an opportunity to participate in a search committee, for example— for candidates, for senior pastors, I think make this an important element uh, that you're investigating about uh, potential pastors in your church and, and potential elders. Are they men, uh, in, in my view, qualified men? Are they men for whom this is a really important matter, that they, they sincerely honor women mm. in the church and commend them. And of course, we can we can discern some of that, how they treat their wife, their daughters, their, yeah. their mother. So I, I think because, you know, a culture of effective partnership between men and women, it so often has to do with the leaders. I think, you know, one starting point is to, to pray for the leaders. But, you know, it goes beyond that. We, we also want to listen well to each other and bear with one another in love and Seek the welfare of the other. Um, you know, in our women's ministries, are we just about the good of women? 
Or are we actually thinking deliberately, shaping things in such a way that that it you know blesses the whole church? It's for the good of both men and women. Absolutely. You know, another thing to say, I guess that we that we really do need to say in cultivating a fe- effective partnership is is as we've already affirmed, we've got to be sober minded about the painful realities around us. Yeah. For example, I think in churches that that hold the particular view that I'm articulating, I think that local churches that um, see the office as elder as reserved for qualified men, I think they they have a particular burden to speak loudly and clearly about how God hates oppression mm-hmm. and He hates abuse and He judges them mm-hmm. and. Mm-hmm that God is the defender of the weak. And then also to speak clearly and loudly about issues of abuse affecting that particular church or that particular community and making clear, you know, what is the process by which we seek elders to intervene on husbands who are abusing wives or on issues of hostility or disrespect relating to our gender differences. What is that process? Does your church mm-hmm. have a clear process and, do the, and does everyone know it? Yes. That this is a matter of church discipline. So I'd say that's, that's important for effective partnership, that we protect each other. We see that as our responsibility. Totally. I think that's just another evidence of like the importance of women being involved in ministry too, where, you know, even talking, taking that specific instance with abuse in the context of marriage or even just like abuse in general, like women having women to come to that they can trust and voice these things too. I think that's, that's one of the reasons why it's so important that we are involved, you know, cause it's hard. It would be difficult for me if I was experiencing that to go to one of, to a man in our church and to express that maybe for the first time ever. Absolutely. We have a um, ministry, the Restoration and Peacemaking Ministry, that's connected to systems of church discipline, so on and so forth. And in every instance where a woman is involved, there's always a shepherdess who is appointed working with the elders, but there's always a woman involved. There's, There's never a situation where a woman, now she can choose you know, if she'd rather sure. not have a woman involved, but there's never a situation in which a woman is not able to have the the help and the advocacy of a sister. Man, well, I could talk to you about this all day, but we do have to wrap up at some point. <laughs> I thought, mm-hmm. What better way to land the plane than to talk about how we can just joyfully celebrate God's good design for men and women in the context of the local church? It's a good question. And I mean, in some senses, we've, we've touched on so much of this already. I guess I'd say that in order to celebrate it, we got to understand it. <laughs> we got to dig into the scriptures and really take God at his word. We yes. want to listen carefully. And if we really believe that God is the creator God and he's our redeemer and he, he really truly wants our best, then we'll see his design as for our good and for the glory of Christ and and so I think digging into the scriptures more and more, even to your point, those bits like Romans 16 that we tend to gloss over. Yeah. No, let's really celebrate that God has designed to build a family, <laughs> a family where there is unity amidst diversity. So often we celebrate that God is in his kindness and in his manifold wisdom that he has seen fit to call people uh, from every tongue, every tribe, every language to worship the Lamb. And we also want to see 
that he's called men and women to worship the lamb. We are this living organism of diverse and beautiful people. And, And I think that really celebrating our differences helps us see the beauty of God and of his reconciling work. So we don't want to eradicate our distinctions. We, we want to honor them and enjoy them. That's really helpful. So if somebody's sitting here wanting to dig in more, obviously the Bible would be a yeah, great resource. Right. Do you have any other resources that you'd recommend for somebody who wants to grow in their understanding of how to exercise their gifts in the context of the local church? Yeah, and I and I I know you say obviously the Bible. We got to underscore it again. I mean, it is this is God's good gift to us, the Scriptures, and I do think uh-huh. that um, we've got to make a lot of progress. I'm challenged by you today. You know, just hearing how much you've thought about this, Mary. Like you've thought about this 500 times more than me. <laughs> no, come on, no, come on. But it, it's um, it's just a, a beautiful gift we have. And then I, I'd say there's several books that are helpful. Uh, the one that we read, I mentioned, you know, the group of women, right. we, we got together and yeah. read a book and then discussed it. The one that we read and that I find really helpful is Kathleen Nielsen's book, Women and God, yes. Hard Questions, Beautiful Truth. Yes. Uh, something I appreciate about Kathleen is that she doesn't simply lay out the truth, but she celebrates it. <laughs> I think she sets a good example for us. Another one that's a little bit different, but it's a tiny little pamphlet. So for those of you who don't like to, to read long things, uh-huh. Kathy Keller's Jesus, Justice, and Gender Roles, A Case for Gender Roles in Ministry. And I've it really is, awesome. how many pages is it? It's 39 pages. I mean, come oh, on, come you can do that on. in an hour. Yeah, game over. And then another one that I would say, it's it's not directly related to, to women's roles in the church, but I think it's so important in this discussion that we not only listen to women from different generations, you know, that helps us discern some of our cultural right. assumptions, but I also think we need to listen um, to women from, from different cultures. And I am yes. a white woman. And so it's so important to me that I listen and learn from my sisters of color. And I'm delighted to say, you know, one of my good buddies, Christy Anyabwile, has edited a book that's coming out soon yeah. entitled His Testimonies, My Heritage, Women of Color on the Word of God. Yes. It's a book that incorporates essays and poems from various women of color. And as you read it, you really do get a sense for how these sisters of of ours are exercising their gifts in their own local churches. And then on that note, I'd say read biographies of missionary women, of women uh, from different ages and cultures who have exercise their gifts in different contexts and, and learn from them. Uh-huh. It's like withstood the test of time. I absolutely love that. And Chrissy's actually part of this series. She's coming on to talk about what to do when church gets hard. So that's really cool to hear you mention her. And I love it. Yeah, really cool. So that's one of my simple joys is making connections like that in the family of God. <laughs> but I'd love to hear from you, Mary. What are three of your simple joys, just so we can get to know you a little bit better on a personal level? Yeah, I mean, the starting point is spending time with my nieces and nephews. I've got oh, 12 of them. They whoa. call me Cray Cray for obvious reasons. Um, That's like your aunt name is Cray Cray. Yeah. That's awesome. Is. They Literally, the little ones don't know that that is not my name. They call me Cray or Cray Cray. And they, they literally, sometimes people will say, hey, Mary, and they don't know that is, that's phenomenal. And then this is a weird one, but I love reading books that are compilations of people's letters. Like I'm presently working oh, through a compilation yeah. of Martin Lord Jones letters and I'm just cool. loving it. And then I'd have to say my third simple joy is sleeping in. 
Oh, absolutely. You know? The I, best I mornings that. are the ones I sleep through, you know, oh, sleeping yeah. in. Yeah. Well, Mary, in just like one hour, you've had a great impact on my journey with Jesus. It's just been a joy to get to know you through our time sitting here chatting in the closet. Um, but I'd love to hear from you. Who's had the greatest impact on your own journey with Jesus? Yeah, I'd have to say my parents. I mean, they, my, their older brother and sister in the faith, and, and it really is such a joy to follow them as they follow Christ. So they, the two of them, I think, have been used by God the most in terms of showing me what it looks like to love the Lord and to really to deny themselves, take up their cross and follow Him, and what a privilege it is. That's so cool. Well, thanks for coming on the Journey Women podcast and sharing your wisdom with us today. It's been a joy. Thanks, Hunter. It's been great to be with you. Y'all, I am so challenged by Mary's knowledge of the Word, specifically in regard to women's roles in ministry. I hope that Mary's life and the wisdom and the grace with which she shared will encourage you to dig deeper into the Word to continue the conversation with people in your local church context, and to prayerfully and joyfully engage in ministry in your local churches for the glory of God. Hey, if you want to check out Mary's recommended resources or reference the scripture passages that she mentioned, you can find that info over in the show notes at journeywomenpodcast.com. This episode was edited by Chris Mann and the Podshaper team. As always, thanks so much for listening. It's a joy to get to journey alongside you all. Can't wait to see you here next Monday. Have a great week. Oh,